The beginning of all of this uh, definitely triggered some PTSD. It feels like the whole world just got cancer. Then my next door neighbors, all of them got COVID, every single one of them. Um, that Friday, they had been at our office. And it's like, oh my gosh, guys, we're in trouble. So we've actually been fundraising during COVID and have actually brought on a Series A investment of $8.7 million. Hi, everybody. My name is Kelly Martin, and you are listening to Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. Back in May, we spoke to four entrepreneurs about how they were weathering the COVID-19 storm. Four months down the line, we catch up with Dana, Danny, David, and Diana to see how their businesses have adapted and whether temporary measures have brought about any lasting changes. So what exactly is the new normal and will there ever be such a thing as post-COVID? Asking questions is Tom Scallon. We weren't going to do this episode. And then when we did decide to do it, we kept putting it off. You see, we wanted to come at it from a how are the entrepreneurs doing now coronavirus has gone away angle. But it hasn't gone away. And to be honest, life doesn't work like that anyway. Just because an entrepreneur managed to pull themselves through the first few months of COVID-19 gives no guarantee their business will still be around in a year's time. So part of this episode is about checking in on the four entrepreneurs from one and two. And part of it is about confronting our own desires for a happy ending, or in fact, any ending at all. Dana Donafrey knows all about this. Because of the nature of her business, she knows that life will always find a way of throwing you a curveball, and then perhaps another one after that. Her Philadelphia-based company, Anna Ono, makes lingerie for survivors of breast cancer. We started our chat by reflecting on the situation the world still finds itself in. I didn't expect to do a pre-post still in COVID mode update. Um, <laughs> I think that that's 100% in agreement. But um, yeah, you know, I, I think that COVID has changed our world in ways that maybe some expected, maybe some didn't. Um, and especially in the world of business, uh, finding a new way to not expect uh, for the pandemic to end, but to make adjustments, real life adjustments on how to function in a world that uh, also is going through a global pandemic. And I think that that's been a really different shift in mindset and thought is to how do you work when you are among all of these challenges and how do you stay in business? And in some cases, how do you grow your business? Um, that's been very interesting to reassess all of that. Listening back when I said to you, what are you going to do after all this finishes? It, it just shows how naive I was at least, but possibly how naive all of us were about how things were going were gonna to pan out. I 100% agree. I feel like in the onset, I, I did believe because of the success that we saw in China to some respect, uh, that this would be a temporary uh, problem for us here, uh, that we would be able to be just as responsible and pay enough attention to us as a society to curb uh, the onset of the cases. And we just haven't been able to do that. And I think that the reality is, is that no matter what, we all have to remain safe. And uh, there are very simple things that keep you safe. And if we all just pay attention to them, uh, we can have a better success. But I don't see now uh, this as a temporary <laughs> issue. I, I see this as a, a fairly semi-permanent challenge that we are to face um, in the next 12 to 24 months. Last time we talked about grants and loans from the government, 
and you gave me the sense that there was money around, but people didn't know how to get their hands on it. Did the situation improve after I spoke to you? I think that the situation for funding definitely improved after the initial onset of COVID. It was very complicated. I think that everybody was structuring the grants, the government included, uh, didn't really know what they were doing because they'd never been in this position before. Uh, They didn't know how to monitor through the needs, the onset of people that was going to be asking for the money. I feel like we're all very fortunate that a lot of these funds got re-upped. I ended up receiving some government loans uh, due to the second rounds of funding. I I never got in on the first round, um, even though I submitted applications within minutes of links going live. Uh, We know that there was a lot of problems up front, but I even think too, with the grant money that's now starting to become accessible and also with the Black Lives Matter movement, right? A lot of these grant funds are going into our minority business owners and to others that really need this help more than ever. Uh, And I think that that's been a really uh, positive move uh, for the grant process is to really focus on the entrepreneurs that need it. I I love big corporations. I'm happy that they're here and they're running our industries. But in the reality, if a big organization like that needs millions of dollars, they're they're probably in trouble for other reasons where $10,000 or $25,000 can really go a far way to keep a small business in business. How do you feel then when huge corporations get billion dollar loans from the government? It's very upsetting for me because if you're going to get bailed out by our government and you've been an industry staple for decades upon decades, you shouldn't be in this position. And the government should not be bailing you out. Banks should be bailing you out. And I think that that's really the unfortunate part of this is that small businesses are suffering because they're losing money to massive corporations here in the United States. And they have more access. They have more means. The banks give them more money. They didn't need the government to give it to them. And I think that that was, I I definitely give a nod to the corporations that gave the money back. I think that that was really a solid move to say, you know what, hey, like other people need this help more than we do. Um, And I I hope that that was a learning lesson for a lot of people um, at that level, because, you know, small businesses fuel this country. We know it by the numbers. So if we're going to punish small business because, of a global pandemic, but we're going to keep industry in play. It just, you know, the politics of all of that is, it can be incredibly upsetting. When COVID-19 began and stuff started shutting down, you told me you had to furlough some of your staff. What's the situation there? So we did furlough some of our staff because we knew that the income or reliable income that we had coming in was was going to slow down. And um, I'm happy to say I was able to bring back two of them. And uh, that has given us our our full load of staff that we can manage, you know, on our current uh, cash flow. And the PPPs have helped. Uh, I think that they're changing the the rules and how to apply for forgiveness uh, every other week. But we're staying on top of that and, you know, really trying to focus on bringing in now the, you know, the right staff as well as business has changed because we aren't the same business we were in January as we are today. Last time we had a little talk about boundaries and you talked about the pressure of constant calls, whether normal ones or Zoom calls. Has your staff coming back released a lot of that pressure? I think that boundaries in COVID, especially in a digital world, are completely messed up uh, for me and for others. I I can be on the phone from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And it's combination phone calls, Zoom calls, Zoom meetings. And 
actually our last conversation at the beginning of COVID was easier than what it is today. Um, I've actually gotten worse. I keep telling myself I'm going to draw boundaries, but the reality is, is that this is how we communicate with each other now. So you're not kind of hedging on that big conference or a big meeting or a trade show where you knew you were actually going to run into people and you're going to run into multiple people at one time. Now, all of those are coming onto your individual plate every single day. How are you going to rein that in? Because replacing conferences with one-to-one Zoom calls doesn't sound sustainable. I think that reining it in is a responsibility of all of us reining it in. I felt like in the beginning, there was a lot of hesitancy or a lot of belief with many people in many industries saying, you know, this is sort of temporary. Let's all look at it as temporary. Let's wait two weeks. Let's wait three weeks. Let's wait four weeks. Uh, The work can wait. And when everybody realized that the work isn't going to wait, I feel like it's come in a tidal wave. Uh, So everybody's also catching up for lost time while planning for the future. And it's been a full-on digital attack (laughs) Um, from a responsibility and time constraint issue, for sure. Do you perhaps think that when you're spending 12 hours a day on Zoom calls, you're not particularly setting a good example for your staff? It is interesting because I would say in our structure, since there's only really me as the executive level, it looks, there's a lot of Zoom meetings that are about us building and growing our business. Um, and, And it takes me having the meeting to then pass the information through the staff or having, you know, one or two people join me if it's, if it's a group discussion and, and things like that. Um, but, but mostly they've been a bit shielded <laughs> from the world of Zoom and it's likely because I'm taking all the meetings. <laughs> Has your style of management changed? Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably if I'm honestly reflecting on my own style of management, I have not adapted as quickly as I needed to. And I will say that because I manage very much on with a hands-on level of experience And because my time is so taxed, it's very difficult for me to give that same level of attention and and experience to my staff because I'm not in their atmosphere. And if I'm not in that atmosphere, I'm actually getting more work done on other things because I'm not getting as many interruptions. (laughs) So there's kind of that uh, side to side to say, if I was better at structuring my time, I think I would have adapted my management style faster. However, I've been so overloaded and overworked, um, time management has just gone straight out the window. Listeners may remember from the first two specials, your six-month scenario and your 12-month scenario, which I I think you described as doomsday. I am excited to say that we're not facing doomsday. I, I think that that was such a frightening time for me because we really didn't know, right? We didn't know how the world was going to react. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I'm serving a cancer patient and cancer is not going to stop. And and more than ever, these patients were going to need us and and need Ana Ono. And I think what we're really experiencing now is the opposite of doomsday and saying, and leaning into this world to say, okay, this is real for us. And this is actually very, very real for our customer. Let's go back in time six months or so. And you've heard about coronavirus, uh, began in China, came to Europe, and it's it's on the shores of the US. What would you say now to that Dana who was worried about her business? I would say 
to the Dana that lost multiple, multiple hours of sleep and just completely hit a wall and felt like I was going to lose everything to just remember why I was there and remember why I was working so hard and strap in just like every other part of my life I've been through, but that if there's a way through it, you're going to find it. And I feel like that's what I did. I just had my moment of slight depression (laughs) and anxiety. And I just said to myself, you know what? I started this business in my basement. If I started this business in my basement, I can always move it back to my basement. Did you recognize that you were experiencing depression and anxiety at the time? Or is that something you've realized now you look back on it? I have to say the beginning of all of this uh, definitely triggered some PTSD uh, in the sense of getting diagnosed with cancer. I, I had a friend actually that said it perfectly and she had said, it feels like the whole world just got cancer. And there was so much of what we were going through at the beginning parts of COVID that just is exactly what you do when you're a cancer patient and you're undergoing chemotherapy and your white blood cell count is so low that you can't even interact with a baby um, because they could get you sick and you could die. And I think that there was this reality to say that the COVID piece was triggering, but it wasn't nearly as stressful or as depressing as what I thought was going to happen to my business because you know a lot of hard work and sweat and blood and tears have gone into making and building something like this. And to think that an organic substance was going to take it away. Not that I screwed up or I ran a bad marketing campaign or I made bad business decisions. It was like the world made it stop. And and that was really hard for me to digest and and take note and feel like in some way I was out of control and I, I don't like being out of control, but in, in some ways I was out of control and I knew I couldn't do anything about it. But all I knew is I could just do my best. And um, I'm thankful that the decisions I made, you know, kept us afloat during those, you know, tough few months in the beginning. And now we've adjusted to it here on the back end. Last time you said you were going to take a vacation. My guess is you haven't taken it yet. (laughs) Vacation. (laughs) Yeah, that thought has come and it has gone. I I really don't know, uh, first of all, when or where vacation would be. Uh, Even just trying to get away from for four days seems more complicated than what it should be. And we've kind of just leaned into the fact that that's likely not going to happen. And we'll look to spring of 2021. (laughs) Sad to say. I'd be surprised if Dana ever makes it to a beach somewhere, even in the spring of 2021. For this crop of entrepreneurs, at least, it seems vacation is kind of a dirty word. I do sometimes wonder how many 16-hour days you can work, how many burnouts you can just about avoid, before those feelings of stress and anxiety become too much however great your sense of purpose. Sometimes you're forced to take a vacation because, as you can hear from this very rude interruption during my chat with Diana, some people, however young, can be quite demanding. You know, despite large group gatherings and weddings not being permitted um, at the moment, sorry, you're going to hear my three-month-old baby because in the midst (laughs) of this pandemic, I had a child. Before having a child, Diana Gann started the groomsman suit with her business partner, Jean Foley. After moving the company from New York to Chicago a few years ago, she now finds herself balancing business and motherhood in Denver, Colorado. After the nanny arrived, I asked Diana if the arrival of baby Farah during lockdown had allowed her to slow down on her work commitments. 
it's been like professionally kind of at times crushing because the business was, you know, not, it hasn't done as well this year as we were planning. Personally, there were some silver linings to, um, to being sheltered, like to being locked in place, um, sheltering in place. You know, I was going on the, as the COVID was really coming to the U S um, April, I gave birth mid May. So like April was like my last six weeks of pregnancy. And I was just like huge and, you know, getting, walking into the office, doing all these fittings was getting like physically very demanding. So the fact that I was able to work from home the last six weeks of my pregnancy was really a blessing. And then we had a beautiful baby girl, very healthy, and we've been able to just really enjoy and spend more time with her. I mean, I pretty much went right back to work as much as I could, but um, I also didn't have the pressure of traveling all over the place. Normally I'm flying a couple different places at least every month. I was supposed to fly to New York like three weeks after giving birth to Farah, And I was like, I'm just I, like, I would have had to do it. There was no getting out of it, but with the pandemic, everything went online. So I did not have to do that. And hindsight, I'm like, thank God I was a disaster three weeks after giving birth. Like I, so I wouldn't have even physically, I don't know how I would have done that. So yeah, I, um, I look forward to being able like for life to getting, you know, be getting back to normal, but it has maybe allowed me to slow down a little bit and, and traveling and the pressures of like running a company and everything like that, just really streamlined. What do I do? I work and then I hang out with my daughter and my, my husband, and I don't have all these extraneous other things that I have to juggle. I have to say I'm pretty happy or at least satisfied with how we've um, been able to make it through despite, I think well over 50% of weddings being um, either postponed or canceled um, as a result of the coronavirus. It's still unclear when large group gatherings are going to be permitted again, but year to date, our revenue is actually slightly ahead of um, last year, which I will take. Now, we thought we were going to be 75% ahead of where we were last year. That's how we were kind of coming out of the gate in January and February, and it took quite a turn in March and April, but we've seemed to bounce back and even stabilize a little bit. Do you think because people are more money conscious at the moment, you've stolen market share from others because you're a more affordable option? You know, that's a great question. I think... um, I honestly don't think that's had anything to do with it. I think it's purely the fact that we're online and that's where shoppers need to be. And so many stores in the U.S. have physically closed their doors. So we actually got a good amount of traffic in the beginning as things were shutting down from couples who had already planned their wedding attire with other big brands, you know, big brands that have thousands of stores across the U S but they were all shut down because of COVID. Um, And they, and these brands never 
don't do a great job online. They don't offer the suite of services that we offer. Um, and they're not, their websites might, are, might not be as easy to navigate. And so for that reason, um, I think that's where we actually ended up doing pretty well with our customers and, and gaining more customers. Now, the price point was a bonus. You know, people, once they realized okay, this is a, this is an online option I can go with. And then they were like, oh my God, and the price is so good. And I get to keep our stuff. They were like thrilled that they had, they were able to get out of their previous suiting option because of COVID. It had broke all contracts. And then they were allowed, they, they happily found us and could kind of rework things with us. Are you worried that once these bigger companies get their act together, they'll start investing millions into online and that could be bad news for your business. You know, I'm I'm not worried about that. I think it could happen and should it happen? Yeah, because some of our competitors do like 400 million dollars a year in just suiting and and tuxedo rentals and for purchase. You know, they do big big numbers and their website experience is terrible. Like should they focus on that? Yes. Will they probably not? They will, or they will focus on it, but they'll focus on it in a way that's like, they're going to just buy another brand. Like it's so hard for a big brand that's been around for ages to repackage themselves online or offer a new brand, like to be more attractive to like a younger demographic. They will just, it's, I think it's easier for them and it's more authentic if they just acquire um, a brand that's doing it well and can, you know, we think that, you know, maybe the groomsman suit could be a potential acquisition target down the road because we are doing it so well. We're selling suiting so well online and our customer service too is dynamite. Not that that's what we ultimately want to happen to the groomsman suit. It's an, it's out there as it's an option, but we are very happy like growing this in perpetuity as well. Realistically, when will people be able to have weddings with large gatherings again? Well, some people already are. Um, we are having a significant amount of couples say, I'm just going to do it in my backyard. Or um, I'm, so it's kind of right. It's, it's spanned the gamut of I'm going to we're going to go to the courthouse and it's just going to be a small group, but I still need all of our friends there. We still want our wedding party there. So we are still able to like sell our suiting to them. Or we're having couples say, we're going to do it in our backyard. And it's just going to be like a private thing. And like whatever guests want to come can come. And um, so couples are actually moving forward, right or wrong. People are moving forward with their big days in you know, I think initially people were wanting to postpone their dates. Now we're at the place where nobody actually has any idea when large group gatherings are going to be permitted again. You know, in the beginning when this was all happening, it was like, for sure by the fall. By the fall, like, this is going to get cleared up. And now people are, have kind of been beaten down enough that they're like, who the hell knows when it's going to actually, when we're going to get this thing under control. So... Um, I think it's so great that they've like, people have been moving forward in ways that are safe for the, in ways that they feel safe for their families. And just like, you know, even if it's a courthouse, just the two of them, we've, we've outfitted plenty of, um, couples that, 
have just decided to go to the courthouse, just them, nobody else. In fact, we had one couple in New Jersey who both had coronavirus earlier in the year. Their, the groom was a nurse at, in one of the like worst hospitals in um, New York. And so the two of them, he, he and his now wife, um, you know, said, we're going to still just do a, go to the courthouse and we're going to get married. So it, it's really ranged, but um, I, I don't know when it, it's going to come back, but I do know people are still planning and people are still hopeful. Are you finding yourself giving people advice on how to have a socially distanced wedding? Um, you know, we have, I think we're, I think we're becoming the resource to, in a way, in that respect as to like how they're going to get their wedding party situated. Um, with respect to like suiting and all the accessories and planning and like even, you know, how they're going to get their dad suited up. So when it comes to like the day of details and like how to do it, I don't think we're really a resource. A lot of times couples will have wedding planners or venues will have specific um, requirements that we don't know about. We can't be the expert in everything, but when it comes to like, okay, you have your group, they can't go into a store. This is how it works, and it's been a really um, it's been a really fun process to kind of open people's eyes to the fact that they actually don't have to go into a store to get suited up to find a great fitting suit. Uh, I mean, it's why we started the company online, and I think there's been a subset of people that have just been naturally comfortable shopping online this way, but. COVID has pushed a whole new audience to online shopping. And I think we've done a really good job at making people feel comfortable with the with what the outcome is going to be when they send their guys or girls to get fitted, their friends to get fitted um, through an online suiting company. My guess is that people have been requesting bigger sizes since COVID. <laughs> You know, when COVID started happening, that was like the one question we would all get in these virtual appointments, you know, like at the end of the conversation, we'd say, you know, anything else? Do you have any other questions? And then sheepishly, one of the couple, one of the people in the relationship, the groom or the bride would say, so um, if sizes change from now <laughs> until like when I'm able to... What's your return policy? Like it was always like, what's your return policy? Because Diana, I'm not hitting the gym like I used to. COVID's been pretty hard on our diet, like blah, blah, blah. Well, if they're anything like me, they started with good intentions. But when it <laughs> turned out it was going to go on longer than three days, we all started having problems. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to a Making It Work COVID-19 special coming up. If you're on vacation, in jail, or dead, you work remote. Uh, other than that, you come in. So we've actually been fundraising during COVID and have actually brought on a Series A investment of $8.7 million. When you talk about this bubble, that means that things are going to get very bad very quickly. Seen it happen too many times. The production of this podcast is entirely dependent on the availability of small business owners. If making it work was just me talking for 30 minutes, I doubt we'd have got our second season, which I should mention is coming soon. Luckily for us, the entrepreneurs are extremely generous with their time, but we were struggling to get in touch with Danny Cotullo. He's the guy that owns Perishable Shipping Solutions, 
an Ohio-based company that has seen exponential growth since the beginning of lockdown. And the tail end of my call with Dana explained why we couldn't get hold of him. Well, uh, you might not be able to reach him because, it, it, yeah, he just, well, they just raised $8 million for the business. So he's like, he's literally a madman. I think I can get a text from him like once a week. Well, it was actually $8.7 million. And thankfully, we managed to get more than a text from Danny. We got together briefly to speak about the growth of direct-to-consumer shipping and how to find the right sort of investor. I would say that the coronavirus has really been sort of an event to jumpstart this industry and really has started, it's, it's been an accelerant for so many new companies to discover that e-commerce is the way that they need to be able to get their products into consumers' hands, especially as less and less people were actually going to stores. But what we've really seen in the last two to three months is a number of larger CPG brands deciding to do e-commerce. And CPG is? Consumer product goods. So not only just like the small, cool, hip startups that of course want to go online to get the brands into for, in front of more and more people's eyes and ears and mouths, but now we're starting to see these larger companies, these bigger brands, dipping their toes into the water of e-commerce and seeing how they can find new and creative ways to do the same thing. Is this as simple as wanting to deliver direct to consumer so you don't have to give uh, middlemen like Amazon a piece of the action? Yeah, but it's also, there needs to be demand. And what we've seen is, you know, I'm a millennial and, you know, millennials have already gone to the internet and feel comfortable making purchases of things coming to their house. What we've seen with coronavirus is a number of people that are older than me, um, an older generation, going to the internet and having to make decisions to get food to their house. Because there's so many eyes there, we're starting to see that demand. The larger companies are saying, we don't want to lose out and be the next company that's, that's the dinosaur that's not looking for the new consumer and where they're going to be finding products. And I think that's scaring a lot of large brands into dipping their toes into e-commerce. Do you feel like maybe some brands are diving headfirst into this out of fear? They possibly need to put a little bit more thought into it. I think that a number of brands are not going to go into it because of fear. And the ones that are deciding to go into e-commerce are actually being a little fearless. It's, it's uncomfortable for a larger brand to go direct to consumer and not use the tried and true model of having the middleman be in charge of customer service, of packaging, of pricing. And so it's difficult for these brands to be thinking about how are we going to go direct to consumer? How are we going to price our goods? How are we going to deliver that same customer experience that's reflective of our brand? And so I would actually call those, those brands that are deciding to go on fearless instead of fearful. Have these new clients then justified the huge amount of investment you had to put into your company at, at the beginning of the pandemic? COVID has been this sort of gasoline on the fire. It's been an accelerant for us. And it's made us want to go even faster, get bigger warehouses, get more staff, get more resources. 
So we've actually been fundraising during COVID and have actually brought on a Series A investment of $8.7 million to help us be able to grow. Raising money, raising capital in general, I found out to be, this is my first time, my first go around, my first company doing it, to be pretty complicated, challenging, and just long. It's a marathon. We actually had Dana spill the beans a little bit about your investment. But when I spoke to you about it, I was expecting you to tell me that people were knocking your door down. But it still seems like you needed to sort of arduously seek it out like always. Well, you know, it was important for us. We wanted to find the right partner. So it wasn't just finding. We didn't want to just find money. For us, we wanted to find the right partner. And we did that. We wanted someone that was going to help us grow, help us get the resources to be able to take on more accounts, be able to help grow those accounts and find new ways to make them successful. So it was really important to put smart money to work. So the past six months or so has been a crazy ride. How much have people been paying attention? Are are new competitors popping up? What we're starting to see is people that are not necessarily in our line of work, which would be small parcel shipping for e-commerce, getting picked up by carriers like FedEx. We're starting to see cold storage places and other businesses that don't necessarily do this start to do it on the side. And so it's not their expertise, it's not their main source of business, but they're starting to see the opportunity that e-commerce is hot right now and they want to provide the service for some of the brands. Your story might cause you a few problems because if people see that a butcher from Ohio can start a successful perishable shipping company, then they'll all think they can do it. Good. We need more dreamers in this world. I couldn't be happier for Danny. We learned from our first COVID-19 episode that there were winners and losers in this crisis. But I didn't expect any of our four entrepreneurs to win like that. No stranger to securing investment is our final small business owner, David Patrick. He's a serial entrepreneur, but is now the part owner and chief technology officer of California-based Shark Wheel. His company, like a lot of others, has seen a spike in sales, and he doesn't really know why. All he does know is that he can't keep up with orders because his suppliers are skeptical of this post-lockdown consumer euphoria. David also thinks this bubble is getting ready to burst. Uh, it's been an, an amazing ride. We, uh, the last time we spoke, you know, our sales had exploded and we were in the middle of a, uh, you know, just a really weird sales cycle, you know, a, a strange time of year to have such incredible sales and uh, no real accounting for why. You know, we know it's COVID related. We know it's because people are staying home, but the real metrics as to why this segment is exploding so much has been a kind of a question mark uh, that we haven't been able to exactly answer. And now we've run into supply problems. So it's, uh, it's flipped from being, you know, Christmas every morning where, you know, there's so many orders, you can't believe it to, oh my gosh, there's so many orders, I can't believe it. And I can't fulfill because we're out of everything. I mean, we've ripped off stuff from the walls to take things out of it. I mean, it's uh, it's just absolute 
insanity how hard it is to get supplies right now. Sounds like you've sold out of everything. A hundred percent. And not only sold out of everything and back ordered so severely that every time I get any sort of order in, it's not only gone, it barely makes a dent in what's happening that day. I mean, we're selling so fast. So we've got a handle on it. One of the biggest problems was, you know, you can only make so many cookies out of so many ovens. And once you get to a point where you need more ovens, that's a major expense. You're not spending money on cookie dough. You're now spending money on ovens. And that's what we've had to do. We've had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in metal tooling so that we can double up our capacity and double up our production. And that's been a massive expense and very time consuming, but it's the only way to try and get the numbers up. Where are your supply chain issues coming from? Is it within the US or, or China or other countries abroad? Dude, that's the weirdest part of it, okay? So it's everywhere, okay, because everyone's booming. But here's what we've learned. Nobody, whether it's China or here, is willing to kind of double their staff and double their things because they know it's a bubble and they don't want to have to fire a bunch of people later. So they're like, look, we're just going to run at full capacity all the time, but we're not going to go and change our, our infrastructure completely to accommodate this bubble. So you have to sit there and just keep you know, pushing the marbles down the line until they fall out the other end. And so the, the challenge is these people will not increase certain sides of themselves because they know it's a bubble. And then so you're dealing with you know, yes, they're running at full capacity, but that's still not enough to feed the bubble. So your view and your supplier's view is that this is just cash burning a hole in people's pockets and it won't last. Yes, they're going to optimize their costs. They're not going to invest in new machinery and new people and new headaches. They're just going to make hay while it's time and just do the best they can. And, you know, our manufacturers are 14 weeks out right now. You place an order, see in 14 weeks. So you could have, you know, had six months worth of inventory and then this flash happens and it just wipes you out. And you're like, okay, I'm just going to go order a whole bunch more. And it's like, yeah, you'll see it in 14 weeks, probably when the bubble's over. So it's, it's a weird little situation to be in. Everybody's like, oh, it's a good problem to have. And it's like, <laughs> not really. It's a problem. Well, you kind of took the words out of my mouth there because I was going to say it's a, it's a luxury problem, David. But I, I suppose when you talk about this bubble, that means that things are going to get very bad very quickly, or, or at least that's what you think. Seen it happen too many times. So we've left the COVID conversation really here and we're talking about the wider economy. Do, do you think that small businesses are perhaps over-optimistic about the sales that they're getting? Possibly. I know I'm not, but that's the kind of guy I am. I'm not much of a gambler. Um, I, I, I am going to say that the last time we talked, there was a lot of doom and gloom. And I think that now that time has gone by and life has settled in and the new norms have kind of taken effect, it seems like is not as much doom and gloom on the economic side. It's like everybody, 
well, I thought it was going to be zero, but it's, you know, I, I'm up to 80% of what I was. And that, and again, certain categories, gyms, restaurants, things like that. No, of course not. But more or less, it doesn't seem to be as negative as it was originally. Our listeners might remember you talking about friends who have shut their doors. Have things Im- improved for sort of everyone across the board, do you feel? All right. So let's Let's go to the specific example of the the people that were in my mind when we had that last conversation. So one of them owns a motorcycle uh, dealership where he sells motorcycle parts and services and all kinds of things. And when COVID hit, he had to completely close down his shop. He couldn't have his employees come near each other, so they couldn't service anything. He wasn't having any customers walking in the door whatsoever. So that was just complete crickets, absolute zero. So he had to let go of all his staff and him and his brother owned it together and they had to make a decision. What are we going to do? And they said, there's just no way we can do this. There's no way, you know, we don't know where the end is. Our rent is so much, blah, blah, blah. Well, they got a PPP loan. uh, And then all of a sudden they found their online game and they started, you know, saying, look, we got a website. Let's go push all our efforts over there. And they did. And now he's kind of thriving. So somebody who was absolute bust, that doom and gloom period, he found his way out of it and he's doing really well right now. I think I gave you quite a hard time in the, in the commentary in the, in the first two specials because you were suggesting that people need to innovate or they die. And I was thinking, well, not everyone's as prepared as David Patrick. I'm quite amazed mm. that, that these friends of yours managed to pivot so quickly. That's incredible. Isn't it funny that necessity is the mother of invention, you know? Is this the natural entrepreneur that everyone speaks about? So I'd, I'd be at home feeling sorry for myself, but anyone who's a real entrepreneur can change their business at the drop of a hat. Yeah, and that's kind of, I'm really glad we're having this part of this conversation in retrospect now, because I've always been in my head an entrepreneur. You know, I've always been that type of person and I've always been prepared for the sky to fall. Um, always wondering what would I do if this, or, you know, how am I going to handle that or whatever? So it's always been one of those things that life has, you know, one minute I've been, you know, flying through the sky in the clouds on, you know, the best version of me ever. And the next one I'm dashed on the rocks and I'm, you know, tattered and bloody and all that kind of stuff. But every single time, I kind of always knew I would find my way out. Um, And it wasn't because, oh, I had the next great invention or this or that. It was just that I have to. You admitted to me last time that you're not the best at working alone, but you've been forced into that because of of COVID-19. Have things changed at all? Yeah, luckily. Um, <laughs> it's so funny how it all unfolds. And I'm so glad we get the chance to talk about this. So originally, we were all, you know, wildly separated from each other. And, you know, there was nothing we could do about it. And then we slowly started getting back together. And there was, you know, two or three people in general proximity where I could hear them. And it made it a little bit better. Well, then my next door neighbors here in the office, um, our business neighbors, all of them got COVID, every single one of them. And not only did they get COVID, they got it on a weekend, on a Saturday. All of them got sick at the same time. Um, that Friday, 
They had been at our office. They had been inside of our office talking to us, generally pretty darn close, because um, we were all pretty relaxed at that point. And next thing you know, they all get COVID. And it's like, oh my gosh, guys, we're in trouble. So we got exposed like super late in the game here. So we all had to get tested. We all tested negative. So we changed it again where it's like, look, we all know as a pod, we just tested negative. So if we agree to just hang out with each other and the others of us that got tested not go outside the bubble for a while, then we're going to be cooler. So now I've got a group of like six of us here that are all this unique little pod of got tested or already had it because the guys from next door who already had it, they come over here now and we're like, well, you know, we know you're not giving it to us again this quick. So, and again, we're not touching each other and sharing food and stuff. We're still social distancing, but at least I got more activity going on because we know we're all negative. Did you see any differences in productivity when people were working from home? Absolutely. I, I can't tell you the massive change, massive, 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 biggest change of all is every friend I have that is working from home. And let's say that's 50% of the working people I know that have now shifted to being online or at home. It's like, what's the point? What's the point of having that square 10 feet be there or be at their house? If you're there on an assembly line, I get it. You need to go to work. But for everybody else, I can't imagine that this isn't something that's going to create a new norm or create some kind of change because I think everybody's really happy doing it this way. I don't have a single example of somebody that's not happier doing it this way, that's dying to get back to work. What was your remote working policy b before the pandemic then? Um, if you're on vacation, in jail or dead, you work remote. Uh, other than that, you come in. <laughs> So this is a, a massive change. I, you're not the only one. We've all been forced to work from home. We've all learned a lot about ourselves. But that change of opinion must shock even you. I, as you know, I don't like working alone. I come from a big family. I come from a family of nine and I, I have a big family. I have six children of my own. I like noise. I like busy atmospheres. I like seeing, you know, activity and stuff going on. So originally I thought this is going to suck. You know, this is going to be one of those things where it's just, you know, the Zen music, the this, the that, eventually it'll get boring and whatever. But what I found is that the corporate guys like Zach and Brian and Tom, who their jobs are mostly on email and on the phone and stuff like that, them not being here is less of a distraction to the world that I have to run here. And I like it. I like it a lot better with us separated. Is the situation you find yourself in because of COVID changed your management style at all? Uh, no. I think my management style is still the same. Um, I've had to, we've had to hire more people, of course. Um, so I've made other people managers that never were managers. So I've kind of stepped away a little bit. Um, I've kind of let them, you know, they were all experts and knew what they did every day. And now they have helpers. So it's like, look, you don't need me. You tell them what to do. So it's been kind of a, a push off for me. I've been taking less uh, responsibility on the day to days and letting the people that were really good at their jobs now push those skills down to a new group of people. 
Sounds like you're all preparing for retirement, David. You, you know, Tom, I have something really big going on and I'm going to launch it soon and I'm going to rock the world. <laughs> and yes, it, will, it won't be my retirement, but I am going to segue soon from uh, Shark Wheel into that next thing. And it's going to be very, very, very exciting. That's it for the third episode in this Making It Work COVID-19 special. Tell us what you think by rating this podcast, leaving a comment, or sending an email to makingitworkfedex.com. We'll be back soon with the second season. So if you want to be one of the first to listen, be sure to subscribe. Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Danny Catullo, Dana Donafrey, Diana Gans, and David Patrick. Making It Work is produced by Yolene Margri, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg with creative direction from Jeroen von Koenigshoven. Music is by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. See you all soon!